This is Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and myself, Alex Hochili. And, and very importantly, a couple who insist on not being called Maleks, and, but instead being given their proper names, Marin Tom and Alex Dale from the Performance Anxiety Podcast. Welcome and hello to everyone. Hello. Gentlemen. Hello. Hi, Alex and Alex. So many Alexes and Marin and Phil. Why not? This is why we're going to have to say Malex because there will be no way to differentiate between all of the confusion. Oh, I can be an Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody wants to be one, but not everybody can be one. Um, So we're going to, well, I'm going to hand over to to George to introduce this episode, actually, um, and maybe introduce our guests as well. Um, one who may be familiar to regular listeners of BungaCast, another who may be new to you. Yeah, so Marin, uh, a BungaCast recidivist, and Alex, uh, welcome, first time on the show. Yeah, so I just guess what we wanted to talk through film, um, essentially. We've got some uh, some questions and some things to discuss, but first of all, um, recently we had this this um, sight and sound poll of the best, you know, best films of all time, um, and perhaps a surprise winner in the 2022 poll. So this is in December. Um, and it was a film that I must admit I haven't seen, uh, Jan Dillman. And uh, yeah, I guess just to kick things off, does this poll represent the, you know, the politicization of the film canon, the kind of the rewriting of the the history of the best films ever to, to privilege a, a kind of politically worthy over an aesthetically uh, brilliant film? Uh, Marin, you had some some thoughts on this before we were we started recording. Yeah, well, you know, there's been this kind of eclat almost on the yeah you know, the, the reaction to the Titan Sound poll, which comes out around roughly every ten years or so, where usually it was film critics from newspapers and uh, magazines and you know real hardcore film people who would you know decide on which are the best films. Like that's the that's the question the best films, and usually it's been of course dominated by things like Citizen Kane. Usually it was vertical the past two times the poll was out, and it was always quite an authority the sight and sound poll about what is part of the canon of cinema. Mm. You know what we would consider as you know the the milestones and the important films that we should see if we want to understand and learn about cinema. And this year, um, what they have done is they have expanded the voting um, yeah, voting pool of people. They've essentially gerrymandered it. I they've think. gerrymandered the vote, yes. So instead of having uh, film critics writing down this, the... Um, uh, what are the best films are they've invited specially selected academics and bloggers and you know sceny people to you know write about what their famous uh, the best films are and suddenly we have Chantal Ackerman uh, number one spot a film that nobody's seen um doesn't mean it's a bad film I mean but on the other hand nobody's not many people have seen Citizen Kane either but... I think it's fair to say there's a lot more bored film students who've seen Citizen Kane than they have in the Chantal Ackerman movie, right? Yeah, so there, there has been a, a lot of very obvious gerrymandering going on in that it now includes kind of um, a, a, a big number of films that are obviously in there not for their artistic merit or for their historical importance, but for their message, for their political message. Yeah. I mean, is is there a risk of reading too much into this, or or should we be, you know, clutching any pearls that we have available <laughs> and saying, you know, this is this is this is the uh, film establishment's like willingness to throw its own history, its own kind of credibility and authority under the bus just to make it some quick political points? 
Um, it is, and I don't think that as a it's a surprise to many people that the film industry or the yeah it does that. It's it's expected, and I don't think people have been reading sight and sound for many years. I've given up on sight and sound about ten years ago. It's not been very interesting or giving any good insights in what is cinema, which is the sort of the ontological question that bothers every kind of film scholar, but. It, no, it's been a kind of really boring uh, political fest for the past 10, 15 years. I don't care. Mm. I think what, what I would add to that is, like absolutely every other discipline that is currently kind of decolonizing itself, for want of a better word, it's in the process of emptying out any content that is inherent to itself, what is the essence of film, and replacing it with something else. Yeah. Film is absolutely no different to any other discipline in that regard. So the or, sight, or they're trying to anyway. <laughs> the sight and sound uh, debacle is just basically one more eg- example of why we're doing our podcast, Performance Anxiety. Yeah, I should probably have introduced a bit more at the top <laughs> the, um, the podcast, but I thought that the plugs for it would come out organically. It's, um, it's sort of like a cold, well, it's not really a cold open that we've done there. It's kind of like a lukewarm opening. Um, <laughs> but but that's maybe, you know, just a, a, a kind of lukewarm bath that you slip into and uh, it or, warms up as it goes along. Maybe it's a pre-titles uh, sequence and now a pre-credit sequence. And now we can uh, move into the, to the main uh, course or the feature. That's the way to put it, um, to extend the analogy. But yeah, so the Performance Anxiety podcast, which the two of you obviously uh, are on, um, an examination of different performances in in different films. The first one, Black Adam, um, which I guess is segue into whether this is one of the best films or one of the worst films of um, 2022. And yeah, I mean, what, what films particularly um, enthralled the two of you? I mean, frustrated maybe. And what were the kind of elements of performance that maybe distinguished these these great films from these these terrible ones? And don't worry, Alex and Phil, um, we can we can also throw in our own favourites and disfavourites um, into the, the list of best and worst from twenty twenty two. I think what we need to really make clear is why we wanted to make performance anxiety, and it's not because we really like some films or we don't like some films, but I think we wanted to make performance anxiety to talk about film as art and especially performance because all these kind of debates around how films should be analysed and seen is always about performance, casting and representation. Is it worth talking about that now or should we just answer the question first? No, because absolutely. It'll, it'll come out organically. No, you can, you, can, you can be like politicians. You can answer the question that you would have preferred to have been asked. So yeah, performance, what is it? Why is it important? And that's actually better, right? Then we can say, here's what performance is, here's why it's important, and here's why these films, therefore, were good in 2020, because and these ones were bad. As long as the list agrees with the one that I have down. Then because we're we have favourite films, but we also have favourite performances that are, not, that are not in those films. So, Ah, okay. Well, well what, were the, what were the best performances of the year then? Because, yeah. yeah, and it would be useful to, to sort of, if there were any particularly good performances in bad films, um, like... Because that's that's you other you would I guess assume good performance equals good film, but if there's some that don't, then would be good to hear about those. Well, why do let's let I think the best way is you explaining why you wanted to do performance anxiety with me because this is this is a nice background story. Yeah, in which I don't look good. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) The main reason why we wanted to do performance anxiety was because I was um, quite bored of hearing Marin. Um, wang on about how film criticism was terrible because it's always confusing. It always, Well, let me rephrase that. It always confuses the issue at hand. It talks about acting when it should be talking about performance. It talks about performance when it should be talking about acting. It talks about casting and so on and so on and so on. Um, and you can start to see that there's a very kind of very shallow culture war, for want of a better expression, takes place around the making and the appreciation of culture and in particular film but also television and so on where there are these squabbles over who should play what you know who should be the next james bond who should be the next doctor who and so on and so on and so on uh, and they're always very shallow and they're always very wrong-headed so what we really wanted to do was talk about the inherent thing itself what is performance um 
on what it, what is the essence of this thing, because all of that essence, all of the inherent uh, nature of the art form is being hollowed out and replaced with these very um, uh, inadequate and very static kind of, um, uh, on the one hand, a very, for want of a better word, woke position, on the other hand, a very defensive, but ultimately quite superficial position. How would you, what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, so as, as you know, from my um, chapter in the Conformist Rebellion, I was really put out that there is a, the, the, kind of the historical deadlock of the post-political that we're in invokes a kind of deadlock also of art criticism. Art criticism is not for art for art's sake anymore. So everything's just piling on, everything's examined through representation, wokeness or you know how how yeah how does how does the piece of art um work in the in the in the greater scheme of the post-political and what is being lost and what is being lamented by many people is you know the the piece of art for its own in its own terms first and foremost so the kind of uh, you know appreciation and enjoyment of things of, of the art itself as yeah and this is why i always bang on about yeah performance in that performance is different than acting in that you know acting is what i would probably say is what the actor does it's kind of a craft but performance is where the meaning is made in film and cinema and theater it's the combination of a lot of things it's a production yeah the way I tend to crassly simplify this is um, performance is is something that is in the sense is excuse me let me try that again <laughs> performance is assembled it's an assemblage of things uh, of which acting is a subset so the you know the actor stands in front of the camera and does things and emotes but the performance is also where the camera stands um, it's the editing it's the music it's the costumes all of those things together. And the last part of that is the relationship then between the audience and the that assembled thing. So the, the way meaning is made is is more subtle and more complicated than all of these kind of very um, annoying and very uh, trivial kind of cultural hot takes happens. And that's what we hmm. need to get to the heart of and enjoy a bit more. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is like a, I mean, this it's a distinction that I wasn't really entirely familiar with. You know, I probably would have collapsed the two uh, in, into one thing. What's left over? I mean, if you have acting and you have performance, what's left over? I mean, other than the kind of um, wider questions about meaning and context, is something like the script included? You know, is the writing included in the performance as well? Or is it just um, what the, the, the what gets put uh, on stage, as it were? You know? In the, the performance, I would define as the final meaning of all these things put together. So you're know? including the writing in Yeah, the, 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 the performance is the ultimate product. That's where then, you know, we as the audience create meaning out of this, what is being presented to us. So the idea of performance is this kind of carefully constructed artwork that involves the work of the actor, the work of the producer, director, depending on what we're actually being seen or shown. Can I uh, offer you a crass example for, to shoot down? <laughs> shot or, shoot yeah. away. One of my favourite examples of this is um, uh, Bloody Love Actually, right? People love to hate this film, but they always say, oh, but Emma Thompson's amazing. She's a great actress. But the, the, the key to that, I think, is the performance. She is, she is given, the, she is written the one empathetic storyline. As an actor, all she has to do is go into a room and cry, which I think any first-year drama student should be able to do, right? <laughs> so as an actress, she's incredibly limited, or at least not very interesting. But because that particular piece of acting takes place within this written context, of, then it becomes a performance that everybody likes and empathises with, right? Yeah, it becomes, you know, it has meaning outside the actual acting, which is not very good. Right. No, that's so, really useful. Yeah. So I guess to, to bring out some more examples, because it seems like in it, with that distinction, it's like acting can only, like any other one of the parts can fail. And so the performance fails. So it's like, you just need a, you need a competent actor then uh, who can like not, not mess things up. 
Um, but yeah, so what are some of the best performances of the past year? Um, either those in good films or in bad films, because it seems like, yeah, if the performance is good and they, you're transmitting meaning, then isn't this a good film? Yeah, I think, um, I must say, you know, having just watched Avatar, I think there are really good performances in this. Terrible, you know, the acting's in itself not stand out-ish, but it's put together in a way that works really well because it works together with this kind of really massive production around it that, that creates a whole new thing that is even outside of a kind of just one person acting. And I really enjoyed that. But it's but, a cartoon, isn't it, with CGI? Yeah. Have you not listened to our latest episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, yesterday. Okay, no, but wait. My point is like... Can you really talk about performance in that context? Especially, yeah. I think it's really interesting to talk about performance in that context. Well, without wishing to spoil our own episode too much, <laughs> the, the point here is that there needs to be, within this cartoon, some trace of humanity at some point. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Mar Maren has the technical knowledge about index and, index, you know, semiology and all of that. Yeah. So the episode very, make, very much makes clear that the CGI is only possible because there's performance there. In the sense uh, of humanity. Yeah. So the idea of having an alien race is difficult to empathize with. So the uh, having CGI or the kind of motion capture performances brings in a humanity that is necessary for us to empathize with the aliens. Otherwise, there would be aliens like the aliens and aliens and James Cameron's aliens film, they would be not empathizable. Empathizable? Is that a word? It is now. It is now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I followed it. I confess, so I confess I've not seen Avatar 1 or Avatar 2. Um, and that is because I know that my, you know, that I would be one of these very crude people who would only see it politically. Um, and I wouldn't be able to understand it any other way and that I would support the humans bringing industry and progress and economic growth to this yeah, you would. creepy, disgust, <laughs> disgusting planet of organic kind of interconnected yeah. biodiverse slime or whatever it is. Uh, believe me, it's it's very satisfying to read it that way as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would watch it just for that. They've got amazing sort of technological inventions there. Yeah. I think just as an aside, James Cameron plainly loves machines in spite of everything. Paradoxically, <laughs> he really, really loves to invent these massive earth terraforming things. And yeah. I I loved that. But that's by the by. Yeah. So so I just wanted to ask something. I mean this is obviously, you know, making like a really good pitch uh, for your podcast, obviously, but also, you know, just for aesthetic criticism on its own terms in and in, in, under the kind of bracket of performance, which I think is kind of interesting, or at least it's new to me. Maybe I'm, I'm stupid, but um, I think that's really interesting. I, you mentioned earlier on, actually, Alex Dale, you were saying that, um, well, I, I, I clarified that it was Alex Dale as if there, there was not going to be another Alex. I'm the other Alex. I'm not going to get confused there. Anyway. You could have been asking yourself a question. <laughs> I, could, I could have, yeah. <laughs> In a very verbose way. Um, the You'd referred to, obviously, you know, kind of wokeness in, in film criticism. And we all know what that looks like. And there's probably not worth um, inquiring any further into that. We all know what we're talking about here. But you mentioned that there's an opposition to that, which is often kind of shallow. And I don't know what, what how else you qualified it, shallow and boring, or um, I, don't, I don't remember, like oh, defensive, defensive yeah. and shallow, right? Um, is that, is yeah. the anti-woke kind of defense there, what, what what is inadequate about it, and do you think it's is it also because it doesn't do aesthetic criticism, or it does too much aesthetic criticism, or it's just political? I mean, wh how would you characterize it? Well, you know, the argument usually goes, you know, oh, there's a black Ariel mermaid, and then there would be people, no, there can't be a black mermaid because mermaids, I don't know, are by nature white. I don't know, whatever. So there's one kind of um bizarre. Um, anti-artistic argument on one side and an anti-artistic argument on the other side. Yeah, that that's what's really bothering me most right. of the time. I think, yeah, further further to that point, yeah. it's like, um, let me think of a good example now. So, um, what's shallow about it? Well, the one that the one that drives us both nuts is uh, it's a very defensive position, and it's not always correct. Is uh, and a lot of actors will say it as well because they. 
because they're actors and they they like this is you know any actor can play any part and that's simultaneously true but also very banal and also um, not true not true <laughs> yes because it depends <laughs> entirely on the genre of the thing that you're making so i've seen terrible you know improv shows in a pub on a friday night which is a kind of performance where people genuinely do play anything but it's terrible but but it's also the rules of the genre of improv <laughs> that people can be not who they are they can be animals they can be pieces of furniture they can be the weather <laughs> or whatever it is right but if you look at something like uh, a james bond movie it has a distinct aesthetic a set of rules a set of expectations about realism and so on who's cast in what role that means no not every performer can play any part not any actor can play any kind of part because that's the rules of that genre and this is where people get tripped up all of the time people will defensively say it's acting and, it, and acting means pretense well it doesn't it doesn't it's not enough to say that yeah so I can understand this kind of knee-jerk reaction of the kind of libertarians who exactly. say, no, it's acting. Anybody can yeah. act anything. And you, you, yeah, and I, I, yeah yes. I like that, yeah, but it's, it's not enough. And I can understand this kind of reaction to this really philistine assumption, you know, that only people with these life experience can play the certain parts and only sort of disabled people can play disabled roles. Yeah. Really anti-humanist, horrible assumptions like this. Yeah. And so, of course, I can understand this libertarian um, yeah. uh, revolt against this. On the other hand, acting, yes, performance, no. You know, because there is something about, you know, the idea of casting that means brings in meaning you know what just Whedon always says ca casting is storytelling and that's true you have to cast the right person for the story that you want to tell yeah maybe you want to tell the story of uh Kate Winslet as Martin Luther King or something you know that that's a legitimate story but that's that's the that with this you create the or your own logic of this which within which the story takes place and that makes sense I think another example mm. would be, um, what's his name? Brennan Frazier. Um, I can't remember the name of the show, sorry, but he plays this big fat person. Brennan Frazier? He, yeah. He's just become popular again. <laughs> oh, the whale? Yeah. Ah. So he plays the whale and there was mm. lots of criticism saying, how dare uh, a nice actor put on a fat suit, which is absurd. Because <laughs> you can get any fat fuck, pardon my language, you can get any fat actor but none of them are Brendan Fraser. And that's the important quality here. Yeah. It's not the fatness, it's the Brendan Fraserness. Well, well, and, and people yeah. always people yeah. always admire when people lose weight for films, right? Like, oh, they really got in shape. Or even, you know, they slim down so much to play a Holocaust victim. Yeah. Right? That's allowed. <laughs> but the other way around isn't. Yeah. But actually, <laughs> Jason Schwartzman, apparently, to play Louis Fourteenth, he put on weight by... Uh, setting an alarm in the middle of the night and then eating some Krispy Kremes and then he'd go back to bed. Yeah. So, you know, isn't it a shortcut, a bit of a shortcut to wear a uh, wear a fat suit when you could be just eating a million donuts? But um, anyway, I did want to bring up a specific example of um, a performance um, from the from the past year, which you you know you talk about in, in on your show, and this is The Rock in Black Adam. So. The Rock, arguably the most kind of iconic film star at the moment. You know what you're going to get from The Rock. He brings in, I think, as you guys said, like in in your on your show, like all this stuff, like all this rockness, if you want to put it that way. Uh, he brings like to any role, like this character, um, which is like has some leftover from whatever the the role is that he's supposed to be playing, because you know he's The Rock and he's going to do the. You know, I think he's a great comic actor. You know, he's he's got the the look, he's got the eyebrows, he's got the kind of the timing, all that sort of thing. But yeah, so why is this a like, why why was this a, a kind of uh, you know iconic performance from from the past year? And actually, did you think the film was good or not? Because I think it really split opinion. And I have my I have my take on it. Obviously, this is what I want to do with this uh, episode: is just categorize all films as good or bad. Um, <laughs> I think we liked a lot of lot of the film, especially the action sequences, were really well well done. They were really engaging, and I thought that was something that I really um, could feel myself into because he was sort of um, you know set within the action sequence and apart from the action sequences in a kind of really nice 
dialectic. And I, I really enjoyed that. It was really good. Do you rate him as a performer? Well, as you, uh, you know, as George said, I think, yeah. you know, there is something very funny about him. And I think there's something very interesting about him in that he is masculine and masculinity that is, you know, okay. It's not toxic, but it's still like cars, muscles, um, manliness. Yeah. But it's, he's okay. He's the, he's the fighting guy it's okay to like. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I think the idea of the everyman is a, a, yeah. a big problem at the moment. Like, there are so few of them, which is another performance we enjoyed, which was Tom Cruise in, in um, Maverick. Maverick. Yeah. Um, because that archetype is so, is, is, um, is disappearing essentially, or at least is. But it's making a comeback, I yeah. think. The, the everyman type is making a comeback. And I think there's new actors emerging that are embody, embodying this. Glenn Powell yeah. is this, and uh, people like, and what's his name? Chris Pratt. To a, a bit. degree. Yeah. Is this answering your question, George? No, I, I, like, yeah, to, like, to, to like, a certain extent, but I did, I did want to put everybody on the spot a little bit as to what their favorite films from the past <laughs> year were, because this is, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road. You can talk about performance versus acting, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. eventually you've got to have a, you know, a top, a top list. So Phil, what about you? What were your like best and worst films of the past year? Don't worry, you won't have to provide an aesthetic theory behind behind justifying all of them um but you can do if it's if it's very concise yeah i was thinking so best and worst like i'm trying to think of all the movies i saw um and 2022 still kind of blends into pandemic years for me but i think so favorite movies i would say um i think the worst one was definitely glass onion (laughs) so worst movie Oh, so appallingly bad. I mean, apart from, you know, the reasons that we've kind of, um, some of the reasons we've already talked about, but just so kind of, I don't know, it was boring and unfunny, you know, and I enjoyed the first um, Knives Out kind of mystery. And I thought like, uh, what's his face? Daniel Craig actually did quite well in the kind of very campy over the top performance of the um of the uh, southern Fo- kind of de- foghorn leghorn voice yeah yeah i thought that's pretty good anyway i thought glass onion was terrible just kind of you know uninteresting <laughs> boring all kind of based around cameos so i didn't enjoy it at all favorite movies um i think probably two um so i liked i quite liked the menu and I know we were planning to eat about to eat. I know we were planning to talk about eat the rich, eat the rich, um, <laughs> the eat the rich trend kind of in movie and TV. So maybe we'll come back to it. Um, but I think at the top was um, the Northman, which I thought was, um, and I'm kind of uh, becoming more and more a fan. I think, or I'm a consistent fan. I think, in fact, um, of the director who also did uh, the Witch as well, and also. Um, Men, which has kind of grown on me in retrospect, because I thought at the time when I watched it, I thought it was kind of um, kind of shallow and even kind of woke, maybe even a bit kind of woke. Um, so it's directed by Alex Garland, who did Annihilation, and he was the uh, the author of The Beach. And um, for those who haven't seen it, it's kind of... Um, British folk horror about a woman who goes to a country house and ends up being haunted by these kind of very, in these very strange circumstances with these very odd characters. Um, and I thought it was actually, I thought it was actually um, looking back on it, the more I think about it, the better I think it was. So I think it'd be a tie for me between men and um, the Northman, which is the Alex Skarsgård Viking movie. And with the thing I enjoyed the most about that, I think was that it, the way in which, I thought it was an amazing kind of rendition of um, pagan myth um, with the CGI effects, you know, I thought were used to, you know, were kind of succeeded very well in that, but also how it, how it kind of um, combined that with the, or the, I suppose the juxtaposition between a mod, you know, a drama with modern themes because it's basically uh, the the original kind of the pre-Shakespearean story of Hamlet um, combined with um, Christianity, kind of Christ themes from Christianity and the um, the kind of the pagan visions 
of the protagonist played by Alex Skarsgård, who's hmm. the Northman bent on bent on revenge against his uncle and his mother. So, so yeah, man, man or men? Uh, see a bit of a so men, theme there. Men but, and the um, Northman. Yeah, man or men um, indeed. Alex H, what about you? Well, what were I mean, your you know, Phil, Phil talked about Top. eating film. And er, I mean, we might have to end up there because, as you know, if Marin has already given up on sight and sound, as she said earlier, maybe taste and feel is all we'll have left. So that's how we'll have to approach film. Jesus, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> still smell. <laughs> I can still smell. Yeah, no, that's right. Mm, the sweet smell of film in the morning. Um, I think th- I interestingly about the Northman, and actually there are two films this year which I really eagerly anticipated because they're made by two of my favorite kind of younger directors and that's Ruben Östlund uh, and Tri- Triangle of Sadness and uh, Robert Eggers' um, The Northman and both disappointed me slightly. I think they're both very solid films and if I weren't familiar with the work of those directors I would have been um, you know pretty pretty happy with those films. Um, I think w- w- the curious thing about The Northman given that we were um, you know Phil already brought it up was precisely that it is so kind of faithful to its own universe and to the kind of real historical universe that used to exist and the rules of kind of, you know, uh, Norse pagan religion and and the, the things that motivate those people. And yet it's also an action movie, you know, kind of you're meant to get, you're meant to get behind the, 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 the guy, I don't know. Are you meant to get behind the the protagonist and cheer him on? You know, it's and I, that ambiguity left me a little bit cold because I wasn't sure whether, like, I was. I, I love The Witch. I, I it's an, it's not a perfect film, but I think it's fantastic. Um, and I thought the uh, Lighthouse was brilliant as well. And I was totally happy with those films being what they were. The Northman. It's like a. It's obviously a bigger film. Um, I wa- I've watched it in the cinema, where I didn't watch the other two in a cinema, so I was expecting to love it, and. I, I, f- I found myself a little, a little bit in a in a halfway house, I guess, between just loving be being in this historical uh, moment that it depicts in its own universe, and kind of wanting to cheer on the hero, and it neither quite satisfied. So I, I found myself in a in a weird in between. There were two moments. There were two great moments that I thought where it totally had me. So um, and spoiler alerts for any listener who's not seen it. So it was when the Valkyrie is riding, is taking the Northmen to the gates of Valhalla which I thought was just an amazing kind of scene in itself. And also when um, the uh, a couple of the Vikings are uh, discussing Alex Skarsgård's murder, the murders that he commits, the protagonist commits, and they s- try and account for them in, in Christian terms, whether or not this is you know the work of a Christian. I thought those two moments, the movie completely had me. And, the, you know, I can, I know, I mean, I kind of, I'm, I know what you're getting at, Alex, but I still thought, like, um, despite some of the weaknesses, you know, it kind of, it's still just, it was on a bigger scale, you know, than either um, The Witch or uh, The Lighthouse, mm. I thought, and they kind of won me for that. But I know yeah. you also like The Crimes of the Future, and you were very big on, on Crimes of the Future, Alex, um, Alex H. And I was, yeah. Uh, yeah, that left me, that kind of, I wasn't so, though I like, I like Cronenberg a lot, but I was left mm. a bit cold by I that. I completely forgot but- what, what my – I initially forgot what that film was, and then I remembered just now, and then I've completely forgotten what my take was, which I assure you was pretty brilliant and insightful. You said it was the film. best. You said you loved it on Facebook. Yeah. Well, ranting and raving can, about it. I'm going to look up my Facebook feed on. and try to find yeah, out what find I that. felt. Yeah. But, but Alex H., I did one – you know, what, what was the one to ask you, what the worst film you saw? this year was oh i i i'm actually you've put me on the spot i'm not sure i had a a least favorite or certainly um not from like new films that came out this year so um pass okay i think you can often tell more about you know someone's aesthetic taste from what they they dislike than what they like maybe but no i'll I'll complete it and then throw over to you malix um but yeah i mean i i think for me the northman was uh like least good film but still probably the second best film of the year because i think on reflection as i was like trying to think what good films i'd seen this year i think it might be the worst year of film that i've ever um that i can really remember but that might be 2020 2021 2022 all kind of mixing into each other um but the yeah so the worst film that i saw was uh jurassic world dominion <laughs> which kind of achieved this like level of like terribleness that i just it was kind of captivating i actually saw it in the cinema you know big kind of spectacle 
but like it just didn't make any sense on any level um and it was you know a kind of i don't know it's transcendentally uh, terrible uh, not boring but bad and i think those two things are different normally bad films are boring um but the best film was top gun maverick i did see it twice in the cinema i thought it was just really good i mean you know that might be a little lowbrow sorry it's not some kind of sight and sound worthy uh, foreign director film but it's um you know just a good a well-written film i had low expectations tom cruise is not a normal guy but he is you know he does very good does very well in that that film all the special effects look look brilliant and it was just kind of enjoyable but if that was the pinnacle this is my argument then i didn't think 2020 was a particularly kind of banner year for film but anyway so th- those are so, those that's what yeah go on phil well i'm so i'm interested to hear malix's views on top gun right because the reason i i didn't see it um but the reason i didn't see it was because i hated the first one um but not for any kind of obvious reason, you know? So the reason I hated, I remember like very distinctly around whenever I came out. So I was about between, I think I was, you know, 10, maybe about 10 or 11. And I remember the re- all my friends loved it. And the reason I didn't like it was because there's never really, you know, the, the whole kind of conflict is um, romantic and within the good guy's team, you know? And you don't really the the actual conflict with the bad guys when they you know have some dogfighting with the MIGs is right at the end and almost like an afterthought. And there simply wasn't enough action or decisive kind of confrontation for me when I was ten or eleven. Um, and I was clearly you know not even like you know Val Kilmer with his shirt off on the beach playing volleyball and all that with Tom Cruise. There wasn't enough to get my motor going as a 10 or 11 year old boy, <laughs> I needed to see the dogfights with the, you know, F-15s or F-16s, whatever they are with the MiGs. Um, and there wasn't enough of that. And so it was a very weird moment. I remember kind of in my childhood because my friends were all clearly getting something from the movie that totally passed me by. And so, cause it left me so cold, I had no interest in seeing, in seeing the second one, but I am curious to hear, you know, why it was, why it's such a great movie. Um, I thought it was the best movie of last year. Um, in terms of cinema, it was just, again, a film that is pure cinema. It was beautifully shot all the way through, very little CGI. It was a really nice story. Maybe it was because this old guy is trying to appeal to millennials. Maybe I could identify with this. Um, but I thought it was a, it's a really well-told old-school story, and I thought it brought what was lost in Hollywood cinema, it brought that back to the cinema. It was completely unwoke. In the sense of it just being, I think, bulletproof. It was bulletproof against wokeness. And that was kind of really, really, you didn't have to constantly be on the kind of back foot to see, oh, what is it, what is going wrong? What what can people throw at it? Nothing. So there was a woman pilot, but Mm -hmm. there was absolutely no, it wasn't. There was nothing made of it at all. She was no. just a woman, and that she was. But it was also the action sequences yeah. were really, really well done. There was very little CGI. They, you know, they put all the actors in the planes and then whooshed them around and filmed them. Yeah, you could see Tom Cruise's like <laughs> plastic face really taking those, those that G force. Yeah, it was great to see. <laughs> and of course, Glenn Powell is one of our favorite actors, and he's in it. He plays the kind of new Iceman. Isn't he's he? cocky. Yeah, he's cocky, but he's also the good guy in the end. It's really nice. And so, oh, wait, you, you okay. said there was something missing in from, uh, it was classic old Hollywood um, that it brought back. So what's the element that it brought back apart from the non-reliance on CGI? Non-reliance on CGI. Yeah, in a kind, a kind of um, the idea that there is hero, goodness and hero, like heroism oh. Um, will be will prevail, and and they are you know the, the kind of what they are is this the story is about that they are become this team and they stand in for one another. It's about, it's about brotherhood. I think Phil, yeah. it's everything that you didn't like. I think again, <laughs> you hit by the first one again. Yeah, yeah maybe. maybe. Oh, no, so, and, and okay. I like the Northman, but I also just liked it because of Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> Full so, disclosure: I haven't seen the Northman. Yeah, I know. I uh, Alex. <laughs> Uh, so Alex Dale, what about you? What was your what was your film of the year? Was it also Top Gun Maverick? Uh, no, well, it tied. But I also wanted to make a case for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Yeah, that was really good. 
which was very, very enjoyable, by, and by no means um, a technically perfect film. It was, it needed a, like another rewrite or something. Like it had a lot of exposition at the beginning to set up the story. Yeah. But um, the more I look back, the more I remember it, the more I remember enjoying it. it it's, um, it's very smart, it's funny. It's it's kind of low tech, but you know, make, it's very efficient. It, it's very it, it hits a nerve. It tells to it tries to tell some a very very simple idea, and it does it really well. I I, I don't know if you've seen it or if you're familiar with it, but it's basically uh, you're stupid when you're young. Yeah, that's is is the thing. Uh, but the, the, what gives it an extra edge is that they're all adults essentially. I mean, they're in adult bodies. That, this is why they call it bodies, 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 because it's about. Physical, partly because it's about physicality, but I think it is also a poke at film criticism that talks about bodies all the time. It, right? it is very self-aware of this kind of postmodern notions of bodies and the kind of authority we give to children and the kind of you know that we take them so seriously and what what happens if we take them seriously? Yeah, and if they take themselves seriously? Yeah, it can be fatal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to add some nominations for worst experiences. Oh, we're going to talk about performances as well. We are going to, yeah. well, which would you prefer first? Would you hear my least favourite movies or do you want to hear our nominations for performances? I think probably that's... Least favourite, least, least favourite. Sure. I have two, one of which is Death on the Nile. <laughs> that says it all. It's just the most pointlessly... Why, yeah, why was, it, why was it bad? Because this is a um, Agatha Christie Poirot <laughs> film sequel to another remake of uh, murder on the orient express i actually did start watching it on whatever streaming service it's on and then i just thought nah i can't can't be bothered with this and i have read it and i have seen the david suchet poirot as well so probably that's enough right yeah um <laughs> it is i think what there's lots of things to dislike about it the cgi is shit it's absolutely terrible. Bad, bad cgi um but i think the biggest problem i had with it was they, they're giving us what this is what um, happens when postmodernists get hold of film is they try and give characters backstories that have absolutely no need for them. Yeah. Do you want to know why Poirot has a moustache? It's because he was scarred in his face in the First World War. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. It's it's the most blatant example of postmodern writing where you where they completely fill in all these gaps of that you the, the poor plebs could uh, interpret in a wrong way. This is isn't isn't there a isn't there a term for this in a in a sort of a film series retconning? This might be this might be right. Listeners who who know this can can correct me. But this idea that you sort of <clears throat> in a later film in a series or TV show, you kind of say that this has been the case all along. You kind of invent this backstory um, and you kind of insert it often quite crudely um, into the, into the character, so that you know, so you, you, it enables you to give some allegedly extra depth to the character yeah. without having to do any kind of dra dramatic trajectory. You're just like, well, this happened and you've got to accept it. And it's, you know, because it changes the meaning of all the other Poirot, if it's canon, of all the other Poirot uh, uh, TV shows and, and films. But anyway, sorry, Alex, I interrupted you. So that was yeah. one of the, well, well, the worst. Yeah. Death on the Nile, what were the, what were the other bad ones? No, I mean, the, the rather, just to, just to complete this, rather than a kind of technical thing, it was more in the Zizekian sense. Zizek talks about, um, postmodern literature filling in the gaps, the filling in the gaps of subjectivity that are left open in modernist writing. So in modernist writing, you don't know why, I don't know, Dorian Gray has turned uh, crazy and bad, right? The, but in the kind of postmodern filmmaking, they're given the backstory of a bad childhood. You know, th this is the kind of filling in the gaps. And this is of a preference done today. So... Yeah. So, because the audience is not trusted to fill in these gaps of subjectivity, these gaps of in the story, with a kind of politically correct um, analysis, they could think of a, a kind of racist backstory or sexist backstory. So they, so they don't want to risk this and give you always the kind of filler, and you know, the, so you don't. You know they don't run a risk of of telling a racist story because you and your mind create a kind of wrong reading. Is that is is that entirely right? I was just thinking, like, isn't it more that it's a good way to give some depth to your character? Like in this example, I, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but it sounds like you know it just gives an extra layer to Poirot. Like, oh, he's he's suffered this trauma and he has to like, you know, this is why he's so 
um, meticulous and he's so dedicated because you know there's this you know you can't argue with this this uh, like thing that happened to him and so it kind of you know you don't have to bother to kind of show this through good writing and good performance you can just like show this flashback and you're like okay well now this character has this added element and that was quite easy yeah but it's bad stories but not just bad storytelling you know it's very good for an act you know again the difference between acting and performance this is what an actor should do you know they come up with all this kind of backstories to then you know do their job yeah they fill notebooks full of this shit nobody (laughs) ever sees it that's the important thing yeah yeah exactly but the thing is you do see it but it's not yeah you You you, see it in the way they act yeah you see it in the way this character then or the the actor then develops a character this character can only walk this way because through this kind of thing that happened to him in the past but Mm -hmm. it is shown through the way they walk I, i think this is to do with and I'll get on to my other least favourite film oh, in a minute. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is to do with exactly the process of emptying stuff out and refilling it with stuff that's basically not filmic. So they did the same thing with um, uh, Johnny Depp in, in um, the uh, Charlie in Chocolate Factory. What's he called? Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka, yeah. Right? We don't need to know the history of Willy Wonka. He's just an enigmatic guy, right? But in, in the film, he has to have a father. He has to have a relationship with his father. He has to have dental work, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> None of this adds anything. All it does is just di- it diminishes the imaginative possibilities, the kind of subjectivity. Oh, um, well, least favourite film? Uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Oh, I like that. Oh, I ha- I don't like Taika Waititi. Sorry. I thought, I, I can't remember a thing about it other than walking out feeling. It was, um, yeah, so I, I think it's it's a- another example of a film in a in a franchise or just a repeated film. And it's like, okay, yeah, we've we've known for a while that, Hollywood has run out of ideas, but this is just a bit brazen now. You have this, whatever number, I think number six in the Jurassic World um, kind of trilogy. Is this number four in the Thor? It's like, if you look at the, the list of top grossing films from last year, they're all like sequels. They're all, that. I mean, the, the, the quality has to suffer, surely. And I do feel like Taika Waititi basically remade the Thor Ragnarok as Thor Love and Thunder. So, I mean, it was kind of had some kind of nice looking bits, but I mean, this. What was the story? Can't remember. Does it matter? If it if it does if it doesn't matter, that's maybe not not the not the best um, <clears throat> not the best sign. But Marin, did you did you say what your least favorite film of the year was yet? Uh, I find it always we've got to, we've got to round it out. We've got to give everyone their chance to speak. <laughs> I always find every something redeeming in everything. I'm just really terrible at finding things terrible. Um, but yeah, Jurassic Park Dominion I didn't like. Um, which one? But which one did I fall asleep in? I fell asleep at one film. Yeah, you did. Um, uh, in the cinema. What was it? See, I can't even remember because I fell asleep. <laughs> it was one of these really important... Oh, was it Was it the baby film with Florence Pugh? Oh, yeah. the baby film. Don't, Don't worry, darling. Which one? Baby boss. No, boss really? baby? No. <laughs> was it Don't worry, darling? Don't worry, darling. Don't worry, darling. Oh, no, I fell asleep at that. It was just so boring. <laughs> just... So we... Yeah. So I mean, it may have been good. I don't know. She's usually quite watchable, Florence. Yeah, Florence she's good. Did. The story is 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 stupid. It was terribly directed. It was awful. Well, who knows? Maybe it was great after the 10, 30 minutes that I fell asleep. So yeah, I guess you know you got to sit through the rest of it to make make yeah, your mind which, up which on wasn't on that. Too bad. It was Batman, the um, Robert Pattinson uh, version, it was just a bit too long but it was it could have been a really interesting film it really went under somehow on the kind of non-entity that was 2022 yeah i think there's some lockdown yeah. lingering lockdown problems yeah definitely um yeah so in terms of what sorry alex do you want to just jump in there i was gonna can go I, on can to I, the next well thing I, I just wanted up. to i mean it, it well i just um you know as we mentioned crimes of the near future i did want to um give my take on it because I've now remembered it um, via the medium of my old post on Facebook. And obviously the, the, the film maybe didn't mark me as much as it, as I thought it had done um, in the immediate aftermath, because I, th- I found it brilliant. Um, and as we haven't mentioned, I thought I'd um, give it a little, a little shout out because I thought what it did was pretty brilliant in terms of taking the idea of pornographication um, and particularly it, it's kind of, um, kind of greatest extremes today of effectively like digging into the body um, and opening up the body um, 
you can think of rosebud porn. If you don't know what that is, um, don't look it up. Though I'm sure there's vice, there's plenty of vice articles explaining what it is. You don't actually have to look at it. Is that is um, that just people who really like Citizen Kane and they just think it's the best film? Right. That yeah, that's right. one solution. Or okay. it's actually um, you know romantic porn where someone turns up with roses and that's it's called rosebud porn. Yeah. Um, that's that's another possibility. Um, and there's a third possibility which I'll leave to your imagination. I won't fill in the fill in the blanks here. Um, but it basically takes that idea and goes, well, hang on, why don't we look at inner beauty, but like takes that almost kind of literally, um, you know, kind of trying to find beauty and meaning within the, the, the inside of the body, within the bio, within biology. Um, and, and it also, I think in another sort of way, um, takes this idea that we are kind of inserting technology into the body, um, and trying to make technology work for the body trying to do the other what, what if we did it the other way around or what if the the kind of logical extension of that is to try to adapt the body to technology instead um which is which is a, a theme that i think comes across um very strongly in the in the film it almost asks the question like what's the opposite of ergonomics what if we do the obverse of ergonomics right not try to like have a try to basically try to mold the body to fit um to fit this technology which becomes kind of the subject anyway i thought it played with these ideas um in a very interesting way um but maybe as a film or as a story it didn't um it didn't stick with me that much so maybe that maybe that's telling us to what kind of performance it was did i use performance right there i don't know <laughs> you, did you guys you have, did you guys see it did you like it did we watch it i didn't see it i sorry. didn't see it no it sounds like i sounds like something i do actually want to see from that description so thanks are you are you cronenberg fans the thing is, you did know, he do? Um, did he do? Uh, what's it? Um, Jeremy Irons twins. Uh, what's it called? Dead Ringers. <laughs> Danny DeVito. No. <laughs> Actually, a David Cronenberg remake of Twins would be something. He did a violence. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's not the twin movie. Yeah. We're thinking of. Jeremy Irons plays twin. Kind of. Yes. No, you're right. He did. He did that. I Dead think Ringers he and good. Videodrome, obviously. Existence. Um, I loved. I used to be obsessed with Dead Rings. Yeah, so it's an excellent <laughs> film. But my knowledge yeah. of, do you want a minute? <laughs> my, my appreciation of is very passionate. So there's there's our our kind of uh, our roundup of of 2022 uh, best best and worst films. All right, that's the end of this free episode. The next part of our conversation with Marin and Alex is over at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'll be discussing wokeness and representation in film and in film criticism, what we're looking forward to in 2023, and the phenomenon of uh, anti-capitalist film and TV, discussing things like White Lotus, Triangle of Sadness, and The Menu. So that's all over at patreon.com slash bungacast. See you there. Bye-bye.